Welcome to On Work and Revolution, where we talk about what's shaking up in the world of edtech. I'm your host, Debbie Goodman. I'm the CEO of Jackhammer Global, which is a global group of executive search and leadership coaching companies. I'm also an advisor to venture-backed edtech companies. And my main mission with all of the work that I do is to help companies and leaders to create amazing workplaces where people and ideas can flourish. So I am really excited today to have Shabri Raja as my guest. A big introduction, okay? So listen up. Shabri is managing partner at JFF Ventures, which is an early stage impact fund. We'll talk a bit more about that in a bit. Prior to that, she was she sat in the entrepreneur seat. Um, she co-founded an edtech platform, Nepris, which she led to a successful exit. And we're going to talk more about that too in a bit. Hang in there. She was the 2020 EY Entrepreneur of the Year winner for the Southwest region. But wait, there's more. She has an undergrad degree in electrical engineering from India, a master's in computer science, and an executive MBA from Cox School of Business. Such a lot of credentials. And Shabri has just the most fascinating career journey, which has in fact been documented elsewhere. But listeners, how much better to hear the story from Shabri herself directly right here. So welcome. Thank you so much, Debbie, for having me. I'm I'm blushing here with my long intro, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's start. Let's just give, give some context, all right? Please share with listeners where you grew up and where things really started out. I grew up in rural South India on a coconut farm. Um, my parents still live there. I love to go back there. That's where it all started, you know. Also, my, my parents did not have college degrees they're very, very focused on my education. So sent me to boarding school at the age of five, which was very typical in, in my family, as most of my family is from rural, rural South India, where no good schools were close by. Right. Okay. And then big expectations are in terms of what they expected from you with regard to studies, career. What, were, what was on your shoulders? Yeah, no, that was always the case i remember my mom saying if you if you don't study well you're going to end up on the farm and i always joke about it like i go back there and i'm like wow what was wrong with being on the farm it's perfect you know <laughs> <laughs> so yeah there were big expectations but but also i think you have to give a lot of credit to my parents um Traditionally, in the environment that I came from many decades ago, you know, it's changed a lot now. But within my families, the expectation was as a girl, you're supposed to get married, have kids and raise a family, you know. But that my parents never really pushed me in that direction. They wanted me to study well. And as typical for most Indian families, they were like, if you are a good student and you're getting good grades, you need to be an engineer or a doctor. Okay, <laughs> right? there are so, two options here. <laughs> the two options here, <laughs> yes. So career paths, uh, I mean, I had zero exposure. My world was farm and boarding school. I really didn't see many people within my community that had uh, diverse career pathways. So 
when I was told like the expect the unsaid expectation was study well, if you study well, you need to end up as an engineer or a doctor. So that was that was it. Okay. But nevertheless, it was still relatively progressive considering the options which may have been just come back to the farm and, you know, have babies. So they were really <laughs> step your parents were already a step ahead. They, they were definitely a step ahead. And and with the social situation the pressure was more about, hey, if you come of age, you need to start finding a, a groom and get married, you know? So that was the general expectation. There were always exceptions, and I'm glad my parents were the exception, you know? so Absolutely. Yeah. I'm sure there are many people that were glad that your parents were the exception because you've gone on to do some pretty extraordinary things. Firstly, your electrical engineering degree in India, but then the big move to the U.S., how did that come about? I honestly, sometimes I think about all the big moves I have made in my life. There is no rhyme or reason for why I made that move. Um, it's always, I feel like, there was always that inner drive where I felt like I needed to do the next thing, the next big thing, the next. And, and at that time, within my community, there were not many girls who were leaving their families before getting married and going off across the world for higher education. That was, it was very progressive in big cities, but remember I'm coming from a small rural, rural place, right? So when I finished my um, engineering, my undergrad, at that time, I mean, in India, there were job opportunities, but there weren't a lot. You know, like, like right now, India's like, the last decade or 15 years, India's thriving, mm -hmm. but um, but at that, when I graduated, there weren't that many opportunities. Um, so I was sort of like, should I go work for someone, which seems like an uphill battle? Or my fear, I don't talk about this much, but in the back of my mind, my fear was if I don't find a job and I don't really know what my next step is, then I'm going to have to get married, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. So... so a couple of my friends were starting to think about going and studying in the U.S. It really, I didn't put much thought into it. I said, oh, that sounds like, you know, fun. That I really want to see the world. So let me just sort of follow the path, take my exams, apply to a bunch of schools and see what happens. I never thought my parents were going to agree to sending me. But the, once the ball was set in motion, there was no stopping it, you know. And of course, anything better than just staying and getting married. Um, <laughs> anything, <laughs> anything, you know. A bar that needed to be. I will conquer all my fears and and leave the country and figure it out in order <laughs> rather to than avoid get married. That. Right. <laughs> yes. Okay. Nevertheless, clearly that was um, an amazing move and completed some further studies and went on to find a great job and do some great things. But what? was the transition point to actually becoming an entrepreneur to be you know to be to have the gumption to co-found a company what yeah. problem did you see that you were trying to solve or what what precipitated this yeah i mean a lot of it is connected to my personal story of where i grew up and what i had and what i did not have right so to some extent, I think growing up in a family where everybody just worked for themselves, they own farms or, you know, other businesses or so the in the behind it, it like subconsciously, I always 
had this thing that at some point I I want to do my own thing, right? But working for a big company at that time, my first job out of college, I just happened to land in a job that was in you know, in education technology. I didn't even know what education technology meant at that point. Being in the job is where I first really stepped into a proper K through 12 school because I didn't do my K through 12 schooling here. And a lot of my exposure came through my first job um, at Texas Instruments working for the education technology group. I had some amazing people, amazing mentors, but while there, I got involved with a lot of nonprofits and other intermediaries like chambers and economic development that were doing this work of uh, bridging the workforce pipeline gap or the STEM pipeline gap specifically for minorities and, and girls. Um, I mean, if you remember, you know, I grew up where everybody was told, like, if you, if you study well, you need to become an engineer or a doctor. It was sort of, I, I was baffled that in a, in a very progressive country like the United States, like there were hardly any girls or others like underserved students going into like these STEM jobs. I mean, we were all sort of indoctrinated to some some extent, like that is the, the path you need to take to be successful for economic mobility and all this. But here, that it wasn't the same message that was reaching everybody. And it was baffling to me that coming from a small rural town that was instilled in me, but I see people here with a lot more opportunities who are not pursuing that path, right? Um, so I got involved with a lot of intermediaries and nonprofits doing this work um, in first in Texas and then around the country. I got involved with a lot of conversations uh, where it, all these ecosystem stakeholders were coming together. We're talking about like industry leaders, higher ed leaders, you know, chambers, economic development, nonprofits coming together talking about what is the role of industry in education? How do we bridge this workforce pipeline gap? How do we bring equity in this process of career exposure and career readiness? Uh, I was part of one such event in the Dallas area. We had a day-long event with amazing conversations. All the top employers were in the, in the room Everybody was in the room who should be in this conversation. And, and at the end of the day, you have a nice happy hour. And, uh, and um, it was a great networking opportunity, a whiteboard full of wonderful ideas. And then everybody went home. And hardly, hardly anything happened at right. scale to really solve this problem. The graveyard. The, same, the, graveyard, the graveyard of great ideas. Yeah. <laughs> the graveyard of great ideas, yeah. And then the same night, I actually drove to my friend's house. And we were like, you know technology needs to play a better role in connecting the dots here. And that really was the first seed for what became NEPRIS. But I sort of skipped many steps before that. I actually quit my job from TI months before this opportunity and this idea even came about. I can tell you exactly which exit I was in Dallas, taking that exit to go to my work 14 years going to work and I thought, oh my God, how did I end up here? Like every day for 14 years, every work weekday, taking this exit to go to work. I, I had a very diverse experience within the company, but it was just a jolt of like, I, I don't want to get very comfortable 
just doing every day what is expected of me to go to an eight to five job to keep doing this without sort of pushing the boundary. So that I literally Googled how to type a resignation letter, turned it in and quit. And I like remember what I said, all important decisions in my life, I have jumped off the cliff without a plan. Um, and I, but I had to sort of break that status quo. You know, if I kept going, it was very difficult. We had a comfortable lifestyle. I had two little kids. We had a house. We had a, you know, certain lifestyle. And it's very difficult to break that cycle. 100%. I mean, I hear so many people who've got these, this like dream or the dread of the monotony, the getting caught in the trap of the comforts, but just don't ever take the leap because it's risky. Um, and sounds like you'd already had pretty positive experiences of jumping off that cliff from time to time. Yeah, yeah. And I had identified a big need. So Nepris eventually arose, evolved, got founded, but then also needed to so let's just get, clarify for a second what Nepris has subsequently um, exited, merged, et cetera. We can talk about that in a bit. But at the time, what was the core focus of the company? So the main problem we were solving was that kids are learning things in the classroom and there's no real reason for why I'm learning what I'm learning. You know, oh, yes. what is the relevance? You know, I'm, I'm learning about rocks in second grade. I'm learning about ratios and proportions in sixth grade. I'm learning about uh, calculus in my high school. And I joke about this. I have two engineering degrees and till date, I do not know why I learned calculus. And so it's really sort of the way we try to solve that problem of bringing exposure and awareness is by bringing relevance to what they were learning in the classroom. And the way we chose to solve that was to say there are people who are working for these companies that are applying these concepts in their work. What if we brought them into the classroom, you know, uh, virtually so that they can hear it from the horse's mouth as to why you need to learn about ratios and proportions and rocks? And How brilliant. I have two high schoolers, and the number of times I hear that is the common complaint. Mom, why on earth do I need to know this? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so you have solved have solved this problem. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. And then it turned into more of a college and career readiness platform, but that was the core of the problem we were solving. And it was very difficult to scale that, right? So, so we had to figure that out. But from day one, we were very impact focused, like we wanted to get to the rural schools, we wanted to get to the underserved students, we wanted to bring equity in this process of career exposure. Like my kids in my house, they look at me, they're like, okay, I know what an engineer does, I know what an entrepreneur does, I know what a, you know, investor does. They look at my husband, he's in semiconductors, but that's not the same case for a kid who who's in a community where they're not surrounded by, you know, a variety of jobs. Right, um, right. Along the way, you needed to do some capital raising, as almost all entrepreneurs do these days, particularly in the tech space. Um, what was that experience like? If somebody had told me how hard that would be, I don't know if I would have jumped off the cliff without a plan. I did not know a single investor at that time. I was just like very passionate about the problem that I was solving. It was very connected to my own lived experience of how I grew up and, and the lack of exposure. All I knew was you're supposed to go fundraise in order to build your company. And so 
trying to raise that first seed round was so difficult because I would go pitch to like venture groups or angel groups, right? At that time, I didn't realize like we were too early for true venture capital, but most angel investors did not understand this whole impact piece at that time. There are a lot more, impact investment is a real thing now, but 10 years back it wasn't. Not in Texas, at least at that time, you know. So I would go to these groups and they're like, education does not have any money. Uh, This is not ever going to become a real business. This is nice. It's a feel good. Why aren't you a nonprofit, you know? Yeah, this is not scalable. We're not going to be able to get our returns. Where's the 10x? Where's the unicorn? Where's the 10x? Are you actually, do you actually have a billion dollar TAM? And are you going to grow over 100% year on year. And I'm like, but honestly, early on, a lot of the pushback was all of this, you know, like I, but the, but the common thing everybody said was, I love what you're doing. We need something like this. But then the next thing would be like, you should go be a nonprofit because you're doing good, you know? So now looking back to really navigate this, you can do well by doing good. You can build a scalable technology company that can also give high impact returns, Returns, you know, financial returns and impact returns. Little did I know what I was actually doing, right? But that is what I was navigating and I lot, learned a lot in the process. Early on, a few angel investors who invested in, in our pre-seed were people who believed in me, people who knew me, others who believed in, in this, this cause. But later on, even as we were growing, it became really difficult to raise traditional venture funding. And, and then 70% of our investors were impact investors who really cared about the double bottom line, you know. And, and eventually, when we exited, for our earliest investors, we were able to give significant financial returns, but we were never put in that category of as even having that possibility because we were also chasing impact. We were put in a bucket of, uh, these are do-gooders. This is not really a viable. (laughs) If we see our money, we'll be lucky. (laughs) It's so interesting to to hear this because, um, you know, for those of us in the world of social impact, it's part of our common discourse. And we recognize that, of course, it's possible to do both things make money and do good at the same time. But it's hard to think that, you know, five, eight, 10 years ago, this was kind of a new concept and there wasn't a model for that. And there weren't that many investors in the space. Now, certainly in the ed tech and education space, that is, you know, very much more um, common, commonplace. But, you know, to think back that you're part of trailblazing this, this work and co- trying to convince investors that the possibility exists to do both things is a kind of extraordinary now in retrospect. Okay, and then fast forward a little bit, and then the process of doing the, what do you call it, acquisition, merger, takeover? What was the actual structure of the the exit of Nepris? It was a true acquisition. Honestly, I never thought about exit proactively. Um, I was chasing a dream. My co-founder and I had complementary skill sets. We were building a truly impactful company. We had attracted some really good people who believed in the mission. We, were, we had built an amazing culture. People loved working for the company. 
and so we were all having fun figuring it out and then and then steadily grew it took a little longer so a lot of the money had to be patient capital you know it, it took a little longer to get there but once we got there we we grew um you know significantly year over year growth was quite significant and we ended up we were at a point during covid there were opportunities and there were challenges as well i mean there were opportunities because we were already a virtual platform um people were trying to figure out how to be virtual but there were challenges because being a virtual platform doesn't really mean you can support a remote classroom you know so without getting into the details of that there were a lot of operational challenges because kids were not in the classroom we were a teacher platform so teachers had to really sort of navigate classroom uh, management whereas now each kid was sitting in their home and classroom management and things like that became an issue so i mean nothing insurmountable like we were figuring it out we we got through a lot of these challenges but it also uh, forced us to think about where do we want to go from here we were growing over 100% year on year there was a there was a lot of um, large deal state statewide deals and as we were getting in front of states it became very clear that we had a very niche product that did something really well that was quite differentiated that nobody had figured out how to scale these live connections but most of the states were like but can you also do this and can you also do that so so it became clear that we needed to be a full-fledged college and career readiness solution and what we had was quite differentiated but we we were not checking a lot of the boxes for a true ccr solution and uh, our option was you can go back and build those things which as entrepreneurs we hate catching up you know like it it sounded very boring to try and you know catch up and build things to check boxes yeah but at the same time you know we we were at a point where we were spending more time operationally you know adjusting things than really innovating more than me i think even for my co-founder he's a creative guy and he wants to build new things and cool things all the time and we were just solving operational challenges and building to solve those and that wasn't as exciting so we really were at a, a crossroads thinking do we continue to build more products or do we go through a process where we have an opportunity to acquire and merge with other companies and and then had a discussion with our board and that's where we ended up and we said we're in a good place we were near profitability we were growing over 100% year on year if we have to keep building things on our own we can but we're going to run this process and see what you know um, if we can find the right partner and so so the first step was to really find the right banker to support us in this process then everything sort of you know the ball was set in motion we had a competitive process and ended up i mean i never really knew much about a private equity exit to me private equity was i had a very stereotypical idea of private equity um but i had to educate myself in this process um talking to other founders who've gone through a strategic exit or a pe exit really understand the pros and cons of both and we ended up sort of choosing the private equity path because we found a good um 
you know, uh, acquirer who was also had identified another company which had very complementary features to Nepris. So Virtual Job Shadow and Nepris, the idea was that these two companies were, were to be acquired and merged together in order to provide that entire college and career readiness platform. And that is what is now rebranded to Pathful. So, so that, was the, that was the goal. And so we went through the process. It took us like six months and then we ended up getting acquired. So I still sit on the board, but I stepped out of my operating role a year after the acquisition, after the handoff and the transition and, and everything was done. I mean, I think that's something that many um, entrepreneurs in all sectors are needing to think about in this current market. It's hard to raise capital. And if you can't get investment money, um, it may be necessary to consider strategic partnerships, mergers, similar types of acquisitions, strategic partnerships with other complementary products and services. So your experience around this is, is so relevant for right now. Even though yeah, you, yeah, you yeah. sort of did this a, a slightly ahead of the curve, we're definitely seeing a lot more M&A activity right now than we are seeing um, investment. Yeah, one thing I want to want to clarify is getting acquired when the company has a very healthy growth trajectory where the company is meeting all of their key performance metrics that is the right time to exit. You know, a lot of times if you're if you're trying to exit because you can't raise money or because you don't have any other path, that is a very challenging yes. path to exit. So we were we were a healthy company that was growing that had a, enough cash to we didn't go the the acquisition route because we couldn't raise money. We we had I literally a year and a half before the acquisition we had closed our series a and we hardly even used that money we had enough enough revenue that we were bringing in for operational costs so anyway that's i want to make that clear difference and i think it's a very relevant point i think that um you know to be considering a, a merger or a, any an MA um exercise whilst considering capital raising so that you it doesn't so that it's not left as the last option um, because I think many on, many entrepreneurs, particularly during the phase that we've had previously, where it was relatively, you know, not easy, it's never easy to raise money, but it was almost assured that there would be some kind of uh, cash injection, there would be the next raise. Um, and so M&A would be left as like a last consideration. And so I think that's a you know, very, um, very valuable advice. Um, to not leave it till you're sort of running on on gas fumes to to have it as part of the consideration right now. Let's fast forward a little bit and talk about your role at JFF Ventures, which I mean, Jobs for Future has been around for a while, but the JFF Ventures as the fund is actually kind of new. So we haven't got all that much time, but I'd love to hear more about what you're doing and what the fund's about and what you see lying ahead for 2024. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, no, Jobs for Future, as you all know, JFF is a large nonprofit. They're a 40-year nonprofit with sort of deep networks and knowledge and, you know, ecosystem within this education and workforce ecosystem. With JFF Ventures, I'm trying to see how I can shorten the story because my partner, Egal, was the founding partner for the very first impact-focused workforce fund called the Employment Technology Fund. 
that was supported by five leading foundations. It was a pilot fund that he was he was he started and he ran and Nepris was the second investment from that fund. So that's how Yigal and I know each other. He was on our board for a couple of years and he's seen me take the company from idea to exit and sort of we built that relationship for over six years. Uh, but I never really thought being a fund manager would be stop in my career. But I really got got a chance to work a lot with other founders as we were growing and doing well. You know, I was I was serving as advisor to some of the companies, really enjoyed that process. But JFF, the idea of JFF Ventures is this this employment technology fund was brought and housed under Jobs for Future, the nonprofit. Uh, Egal sort of raised more money and made more investments out of that fund. And that was considered sort of a a proof of concept fund, right? There was an opportunity to really try different things. And what we're doing now, when I joined him, the idea was to really launch JFF Ventures um, as a new entity, an independent entity, still strategically aligned to JFF, the nonprofit, but operationally independent. So we have an opportunity to really build a best-in-class impact first venture fund that sort of has all the pros of a venture fund, but all the benefits of, of really sort of accelerating impact by having access to this vast ecosystem and the network. That is our biggest differentiator, is we are a venture fund, um, but we are impact first, but we're also building it on top of this amazing ecosystem and the network that can accelerate growth for our portfolio companies as well. So the thesis of the fund is uh, why I was super excited about joining EGAL, um, it's it's really squarely focused on investing in technology solutions that are supporting the economic mobility of middle to low wage workers. What that means is there is over 100 million adults in the U.S. who are making less than $45,000 a year and low wage work is even less than $30,000 a year and many of them are underrepresented um, in the workforce. So that is the population we are focused on. And we are investing in companies that are supporting the, the uh, you know, upskilling, reskilling of this workforce, access to better quality jobs, supporting employers with the, with the tools to hire and retain diverse talent, supporting this group with sort of looking at it as a holistic approach, providing the wraparound services like childcare, transportation, financial literacy. So that's really the core of our investment thesis. And we are raising a new fund. We're move, you know, moving fast towards first close, lots of momentum, but super exciting because we're building a team, we're building a new fund. We're attracting the right founders, very diverse group of founders who have lived experiences. And you know why I care about this, because I was one such founder. And I'm super grateful for the opportunity um, to really sort of, I look at this as paying it back and, and continuing to support those founders who may not have a billion dollar TAM or may be just a first time founder, um, ignored by traditional venture capital, but really focused on impact that they they can't, they believe that they can balance it and balance both, you know, financial returns and impact returns.
Well, I was going to ask what's shaking up for 2024, but I mean, with that segue, I can absolutely see it goes without saying that you've kind of got this launch pad for so much, so much momentum for um, what looks like is going to be a pretty fantastic year for you. 2024, yes, it's a big year for us because that's where we're launching the new fund. Um, with the fundraising. Well, I'm excited to watch the space. What a wonderful story. What a lovely time we've spent. Thank you for sharing all of that with us. Good luck for the rest of this phase of 2023 and into 24. I'm certainly excited to see what arises with JFF Ventures and you. Thank you, Shabri. Thank you, Debbie, for having me. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for hanging around all the way to the end. It would mean the world if you would rate and review on Work and Revolution on your favorite listening app. It helps people know that the show is worth listening to. And so I'll really appreciate that. Thank you so much.